This is the Geek Therapy Podcast. Join Lara Taylor and me, Josue Cardona, as we celebrate how geek culture is saving the world. Currently, we're focusing on a geek therapy library. The library is designed to help fans communicate through their favorite movies, books, and games. It's a resource for therapists, teachers, and parents to find a way to work with or talk about important things through awesome content. Welcome to the show. Hello, Josue here with a special episode of Geek Therapy. This is an interview episode. If you listen to Headshots, another show on our Geek Therapy network, you may have heard this interview already. It published at the beginning of March on Headshots. And the reason why I'm publishing it again here on Geek Therapy is that it was originally a Geek Therapy show. Geek Therapy at its core is about how geek culture can save the world. And... There's a new book out called Power Play, How Video Games Can Save the World. And I did this interview for Geek Therapy, but there were some technical difficulties one week at Headshots, and it was related to gaming, so I decided to publish it there anyway. But I still want to make sure that it's on this feed. So if you've already heard it at Headshots, don't worry about it. Skip this one. It's okay. Now, if you haven't, well, do I have an interview for you? <laughs> this is Asi Barak. He is the CEO of the company Power Play. He's the chairman of the organization Games for Change. And he is the co-author of that book I mentioned. It's called Power Play, How Video Games Can Save the World. I've known of Asi for years. And a while back, my girlfriend, she went back to school to do a master's program. And she has a, a class called Games for Change. And her professor was Asi. And I was, I, was, I was very excited. I may or may not have gone to class a couple times just to see what was going on there. And so I was really excited when I heard that he was writing this book. So I talked to him about the book and kind of, you know, social impact games in general. I really enjoyed talking to Asi. And listen, even if you've heard it before on Headshot, it's probably worth revisiting. There's a lot of good information here. All right, so here is my interview with Asi Barak. So I was I was very excited when my girlfriend was in your class. Yeah. Because I I knew of you, right? Yeah. I never met you, but yeah. I was excited. I was like, are you, are you serious? Asi is your is your is your yeah. teacher? And so maybe I I'll start with that. Um you teach a class at the School of Visual Arts, right? The Design for Social Innovation program. Um, it was funny because my my girlfriend might kill me for saying this, right? But at first, she kept a, she told me about why are we taking a gaming class yeah. in a, in a social in a Design for Social Innovation course? Yeah. So how did that come together, and why why teach that class? Why is that important? Yeah, you know, it uh, it was really the. Um uh, I think for to the credit of uh, the chair of the program, Cheryl, that uh, she heard about what I'm doing and uh, without too much hassle, she was like, will you be willing to teach a class? And I said, you know, I thought about it for a long time and let's do it. And uh, we jumped on it and I actually did it from the first uh, year at, at that program. And uh, look, I mean, for me, it aligns super well with everything I'm uh, trying to convey, which is video games are a medium that is valid as any other one. And in fact, there are some things you can do with video games that you cannot do with previous traditional linear media. So why not give those tools to designers that want to change the world? Do you find any resistance from the students? Look, at the beginning, it's always the same story. You know, the, you have half of the class that never played games. You have a lot of people that uh, are very skeptical or they're like, how can you use games for serious issues? And especially if they come from uh, certain cultures, you know, that video games in that country are regarded in a certain way. But 
at the end of the class, I, I mean, I don't want to brag, but many people come to us and not only that they're converted, it's also the, the most engaging class in the, in the school because it's a class where they can actually make interactive experiences. Yeah. For her thesis, just to give you a, an update, for her thesis, she's making various prototypes. And one that she made, she used MIT's Tailblazer yeah. to make a geolocation game right, for, exactly. for her thesis. Yeah, That's so, great. Yeah. And I, I don't think she would have done that without right. having taken that class. No, I mean, I, and, and I think I see the value in it. I want to take that class, right? I mean, that's a class that I wish was, yeah. was available to more people. And, and I like that the, the new book, Power Play, is like a history Right of of the games for change movement. I don't know how you would. Uh, yeah, I mean, it. I mean, it's it's true to say that it's uh, it's history, but it's history that is being told in a very specific lens of. Let's take the most compelling stories of projects that became a success. Uh, they're still under the radar mainstream because you know people know games for mostly for uh, commercial blockbuster games. But um, we took also the most interesting characters. So the stories are told from the eyes or from the perspective of entrepreneurs. You know, each one of those projects, it's much more than making a game. You know, people started companies, people started organizations. Uh, and some of those characters are, you know, celebrities. I mean, one of them is Supreme Court Justice, Sandra Day O'Connor. Another one is a Saudi prince. Another one is Pulitzer Prize-winning uh, author and writer Nick Kristof. So you have those very interesting people that try to do this, and even for them it's hard because they face the perception, they face the skepticism. And so, you know, we, we kind of collected vignettes, like the most interesting ones we could find. Do you, um, why why tell that those stories right? Why tell them now? I'm just curious. Like, did did now feel like a time? Like, it's been maybe ten years that we, you know we can we see yeah. a pattern. Yeah, it's a good question. There was something about uh, almost like the movement becoming mature enough that first of all you can tell those stories. You know, some of them needed years to develop and and also get uh, let's call it proof evidence that they actually work that there is impact. Um, but I think also the movement as a whole kind of went through a transition to a place where from trying to be legit, it's almost like, okay, now it's legit, you know, people get it, people, you know, we partner with the best in the world, you know, from the White House to government agencies to um, corporations like American Express, you know, we, we're already working with very mainstream partners, so it's now moving to a place where people don't ask why, they ask how. They ask, okay, how do you do it in a, in a smart, effective way? That, that, that's interesting because one of the themes in the, in the book, which is something that I, I face all the time when I tell people, like, we, can, we can use this to do good, is that where, where, where's the proof? You know, they want validation that, that it's actually working. And that's my favorite part of the story is that it's always like, well, I, th I have an idea. I'm pretty sure this can work. I've seen, you know, sparks of it. So let's just go and, and finding people that believe enough in it to move forward anyway. Yeah. Um, like uh, th that wasn't, I, I like that you start the book with um, a comic book analogy, right? Because comic books is one of the things that we, that, that we use the most of that we talk about most here because it's so easy to just 
you, right. know, you know, you understand, right? And then to bring up that analogy, I thought was really great. And then to contrast that with how much bigger the video game industry is. But going back to comic books, I mean, Art Spiegelman, the story of Mouse that we tell at the very beginning, um, is kind of a very known uh, story. But, you know, I had the privilege to speak with him and, and have a conversation around it. At 92... It wasn't clear, you know, he, he opened he opened the way for many others. And even before that, he did a lot of underground work uh, with other artists, so he's not the only one. But once he got this household success with Mouse, that opened a whole genre of graphic novels. And that was a tipping point. So, you know, the fact that we now look back and say comic books are obvious and graphic novels are obvious, it wasn't obvious back then. So in a way, the, the analogy is we're still evolving. Video games are still moving in a certain direction that hopefully will make them much more diverse, much more sophisticated, uh, nuanced, uh, reach broader audiences. You know, I, I see people in the in the video game industry that say, "Oh, don't don't change us." You know, we love what we we love what we have. I mean, that's fine. Nobody is going to touch what you love. It's just like engage more people with it. Why not? You know? Yeah. Um, do you feel? I feel that it's getting better over the years. I feel that I, I find less resistance, and it's getting much easier, and people are way more open to it. Do you? Do you also see that? I mean, I, I see some of that, but, uh, you know, I'll give you an example. So at the Game Awards, the you know, supposedly the game's Oscars every year, um, you know, Jeff Cayley was a friend. He put a category of games for change, and he did it on his own. I mean, he obviously is aware of our work, but uh, three years ago, and every time he's doing the announcement of the winners in all categories... I see on Twitter and social media, because I have the, the search on Games for Change, I see the backlash. And it's every year the same thing. You know, all those gamers that supposedly treat this category as some threat or lesser games. And um, I mean, even that is changing because the games are becoming better. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what about outside of the gaming industry or outside of uh, gamers, people who don't, who are just anti-games in general? So with them, I actually have, uh, I mean, me and, and other people in the community and obviously the organization, um, we're very, it's very easy to convert them, I have to admit. Uh, it could be one talk. It can be... Um, Do you have a go-to game? Like, play yeah, this. I mean, yeah. many times I, I, I give them a few recommendations because another thing that I'm seeing is, is that it's not only about, you know, a nice-to-have converting people. It's, it's a must-have because you have parents now that they have kids and those kids are engaging hours in video games and they don't know anything about this medium. They don't know how to curate those games. They don't know how to moderate. They don't know how to, you know, they don't know if, if their kids are doing something they should be worried about or happy about. Or So, you know, I have a lot of those, uh, either in a talk or conversations in a cocktail party, and I'm giving parents recommendations of very good games that their kids should play, you know? And, uh, and they're, lo they're loving it. 
they want this guidance you know what i mean yeah 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 plus seeing it more in schools and and yeah you know you see the more in schools although i was never like a big uh, i mean i love the idea that schools are using games but it was never my main goal because you know when i look at media we talked about comic books we can talk about tv or films i mean nobody can constrain uh entertainment into the classroom and i don't want those games to become like broccoli games you know i don't want them to be labeled as classroom only so for example i civics which is the sandra de o'connor uh, big project one of two kids actually played it at home even though they didn't need to so That's to me the success that I want I want people to play I want kids to play those games at home that they be so engaging that they can live outside of the classroom not only competing with textbooks I remember when I was in school I played Carmen San Diego a lot right and I think it had a lot to do with the fact that it was there was a TV show and a cartoon show and it was yeah I had the board game you know I played every version where in time yeah. and I you If the facts were correct in the game I learned a lot right and and I enjoyed it a lot and I played it at home yeah. and it was on the Super Nintendo there was it was so pervasive and I feel like a lot of people played that game and now we fast forward 20 years and people forgot that they were playing games to learn I know. in school I know. Well, Oregon <laughs> Trail is another example yeah. that everybody remembers yeah. I think that it has to do more with um, uh, you know if we go deep into it is it's the technology that was available then okay and And with the technology that was available then, an educational game could be made to be as engaging and um, impressive as any other game. That's a good point, yeah. And, uh, and it looked better than my Game Boy games. Yeah, at the exactly. Time. Yeah, yeah. And also, the, and now it's a challenge, you know, budgets and all. And also, you know, especially in the case of Oregon Trail, I read about it and how it, how it became such a phenomenon. I mean, the guy basically sat on this amazing distribution network and uh, that, that he could get the games to all schools. I mean, it was like a chat by chance. And, uh, and that was just a fluke, you know. It was, he was right there when, in the right timing and he got it to, to almost every student. So uh, I think it's a lot about timing, but it just says that, you know, the gap opened, but we can close it again, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, a, that's so interesting, the, the, how they compete. There's, and and I, I'd, I'd just like to get your opinion on this. I, there's a game, you don't have to comment on the game itself, just the situation. Um, there's a game called We Are Chicago, yeah. right? And the first time I saw it, maybe a year or two ago at a, at a festival, I saw it and I thought, wow, it looks, I, you know, I, I thought it looks kind of clunky because it's competing with the games that yeah, are right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah. And like, like you mentioned, a lot of games have that problem. Yep. So I've always wondered why something like that couldn't be a mod for GTA, for example, right? right? Because it looks so similar, right. but then people are trying to build from scratch. And in the actual, in the, in the video game industry, the, 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 the big companies, how are they, are they open to that kind of thing? To not only... Make, I, I'm sure they're not that open yeah, to yeah. making them because they won't make that much money, but are they open to assisting in that kind of way? So let's talk about two things. One is Indies and one is gaming industry. So we'll start with the Indies. Um, I think that it's, it's a lot about talent and, and scoping. So uh, let's take a good example that I'm using a lot, Papers, Please. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's a one-man game, mm-hmm. but 
first of all, is super talented. The guy is, is really, really great in what he does. But also, he scoped it in the right way. He made something that, by the way it looks, by the way it behaves, he could control. Uh, it was uh, aesthetically pleasing and interesting. And he sort like crazy. Yeah. I mean, he, he became very financially successful. He didn't do it as an educational game or something like that. So, so I think it's about that. You know, if you go and try to compete with World of Warcraft or something like that from scratch, and you're not that of a talented game designer, it will be tough. And you don't have the resources. The second thing I would say is about the game companies, I see good signs. So, you know, look at Ubisoft. Uh, releasing something like Valiant Hearts mm-hmm. yeah. and even submitting it for a Games for Change yeah. Award. Um, look at EA partnering with the, the Entertainment Software Association and starting something like Glass Lab uh, and, you know, taking SimCity into an education version. Look now at Take-Two trying to do the same with Civilization. Um, Minecraft. We, yeah, we get support from, uh, we got support in the past from Zynga. Now we get support from Take-Two at Games for Change. So you see that, uh, you see the movement and I think the most ex- exciting thing I'm seeing is game developers that get tired from mm. entertainment only, that they want to do something meaningful, you know? Yeah. The Ubisoft example is good because that game engine is is the same one they use for, for Rayman and, and Child of Light and, and someone wanted to make that game is my understanding, exactly. right? Yeah, and, and so... They were like they gave them the green light. Yeah, exactly. So you have passion coming from within. By the way, when we walked with Zynga on After Sky back in the days when Zynga was a giant, um, it worked because some people inside the organization really volunteered their time and wanted it to succeed. Something like uh, After Sky when our Facebook game still that would would uh, launching a Facebook game like that now be as as popular no no not right. at, i mean it's 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 all a matter of timing arguably we we were even a bit late just it took us so much time to raise the money but you know if we did it two years earlier we were probably even more successful with it so what platforms now do you see i mean look mobile is great it's just super noisy uh, very very hard to to get discovered uh, but it's definitely, you know, we talked about technology. It's definitely something that the constraints are very good for someone who wants to do something different. I think, uh, you know, web is still great. Um, you know, consoles, I wouldn't necessarily go unless I have a huge success uh, with consumers. Um, so, you know, most of the, the games for change I'm seeing are on the web or uh, uh, mobile these days or both. Are you talking? I, I know I've been talking a lot about papers, please, lately because of the news, and yeah, it's it's great to be able to point to someone that you know, point people to a game that is 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 actually fun, but it makes you think, and it's so relevant to yeah. To but I have, I have I have now a list, you know. So the the good news is that you have more and more. You have gone home, and you have uh, life is strange, and you have uh, a game like uh, Never Alone. So you start to have more games that are very meaningful and they're done in a, in a commercial level or at least at a level that um, is, co- is compelling to gamers and non-gamers alike, you know? So the, the, a lot of people argue that 
these games are not games, right? That's not the argument I want to have, <laughs> right? Um, but I, I feel that what is happening in a lot of these games is just it's a, allowing us to be more interactive with either information or an idea, and it's more about simply the interaction, like uh, to doing something like Twine, which is very yeah. simple, but I, I love Twine. I, I yeah. use it as, a, as an empathy teaching tool. You know, yeah. I tell people you can you can write a story, but write it from two different perspectives, for example, right? Yeah. And it's it's always engaging. It can be short, but it's to the point, and it gets it done. And I can't do that with you know just words. Yeah, I mean, look, look, you bring a great point about empathy. I mean, what games can do, and and when I say games again, it's virtual reality, the future, it's uh, interactive. They can bring us to different places. They can give us different perspectives. They can put us in completely different situations. Movies do it, but you're very passive. You know, books do it, but you're, you're, it's scripted. So the idea that you can take actions and you can make uh, interesting choices. Now, if all choices in the world were, do I shoot now or load my, <laughs> you know, load my ammunition, um, that would be boring, you know. If if all movies in the world were Fast and Furious, you know, it's just it's just not interesting enough in my mind. It's not bad that you have those movies or you have those games, but I think we need a much more diverse diet. Games need to go go to a place like previous media where there are many tastes, many ages, many genres. You know. Yeah. Actually, this is, uh, maybe you'll appreciate the story. I recently spent the whole week with my nephew. He's nine years old. And he wanted to play The Walking Dead. Telltale is The Walking Dead. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> I told the story on the show. You don't realize how much cursing and how and how mature that game is until you play with a child yeah, next yeah, to you. Yeah. Um, but I decided to play it with him because he had already seen the entire game multiple times in Let's Plays. On, on Right. And, and it... it it opened my mind to this idea that even by having the games be entertainment, also now in a way passive entertainment, because people even enjoy watching other people play them, by having these games, I've seen Let's Plays for um, ROM 2064 and uh, Never Alone and Life is Strange. It's like, it's incredible. Even if the person doesn't play them, the curiosity, there's enough media out there and enough coverage for people to have a taste of that experience, right. which doesn't make it easier, right, to talk about the games. Right. I thought it was incredible. So do you see esports and, and Let's Plays playing a role, uh, a bigger role, or do you see a, 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 an effect in the future? I mean, uh, it, it's, it's definitely a huge change, and it's a recent change, so we still need to understand it. What I can say about esports that is even more, uh, to me, interesting than just watching uh, online, it has this physical element and uh, this celebration element. And, uh, you know, there's definitely a, a, the dark side. You know, there's there's a harassment in esports. It's not gender balance, blah, blah, blah. But at the same time, there is this idea that people go into an arena and just to watch, just to admire the skill. Um, this is something that you know, I see it in such a positive light. And uh, and the fact that, you know, the nerds are now heroes <laughs> and the idea that uh, you start to have kind of uh, 
flashbacks to the Olympics and uh, nations competing and cities competing. I mean, to me, all of that is super, super positive. And um, it, it breaks the, this uh, image, false image, I would say, that games isolate us. And that, you know, you're stuck in front of your screen and you're, I mean, it's, esports is like the complete opposite in many ways. Yeah, no, it's, it's very helpful that, you know, when, when league, uh, came to Madison square garden, someone, uh, someone offered me tickets. I was like, I don't, I don't know if I want to do that. I was like, I, I would, can I watch it from home? You know, but, but the idea of that place being so full, I, I regret not going afterwards because yeah. I can't imagine yeah. what the, although maybe it just won't be as different as going so, to so a, I don't a regular if, sporting event, you know? I don't know if you know that, but it's my project. I mean, I was involved. Really? To have it, to have it yeah, uh, so shown it, there? So <laughs> in 2015, uh, together with my partner, Itzik Ben Bassat, who is, uh, uh, Itzik Ben Bassat is uh, ex-Blizzard. He was there from the very first uh, uh, kind of pitch of World of, War- World of Warcraft. And he was a C-level executive. Uh, he was there for many years. And uh, together we, we helped uh, Tribeca in Madison Square Garden and to think about games. And our first idea was, uh, that was actually Itzik's idea, was let's bring eSports. So we worked with them, and as a, as a team, we went to Riot, and we said, will you be, be willing to consider Madison Square Garden? And it was a process. It took us a few months to convince them because they didn't consider uh, MSG as an option. It was too expensive, and eventually we did. And in 2015, for the first time in the summer, they came to MSG. And I think for them, it was also a milestone, or let's say for the all esports industry, because uh, in Madison Square Garden still has this aura, you know, this uh, kind of halo of being one of the most famous venues in the world. Yeah. So you break some kind of a record. by, yeah. and, and it was sold in 36 hours, sold out. So... Everybody that was skeptical just, you know, got convinced and saw the engagement level, the passion. It was yeah. super, super interesting. So that's, it's my understanding that in other countries, it's more common to have this type of event because the, you know, in Korea, for example, right, StarCraft players get sponsorships and things like that, right? So are we, was that, do you, how, how is this playing out? worldwide essentially yeah not just esports but then like i, I want to hear you know I, I think we're maybe catching up to some other countries right, in terms of esports i mean it depends i mean korea korea is an exceptional story and they that was definitely the you know where, where let's say professional esports began yeah. yeah um it's not where competitive gaming began because that that goes back to the arcade ga- uh, days you know and and i would say that it was actually more you know, U.S. and Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, but Korea, definitely in terms of the, you know, the uniqueness of uh, professional mainstream esports, that was the Mecca. Yeah. And then it, it kind of spread to Europe and the U.S. Um, and I think that what happens now is that uh, China and the U.S., just, just for being such big media markets and big entertainment markets, they're kind of rising and a lot of it is because there's so much uh, new interest from brands and advertisers. 
so in a sense, now the business is taking over and making U.S. and China the most interesting destinations. Okay. Just yeah. the, the sheer scale yeah. of what yeah. you can do here. So, you know, Korea is still limited, uh, one culture, and, uh, and uh, I think that um, we'll see China and the U.S. probably. I mean, Europe is kind of behind, uh, uh, strong but behind, but these are going to be the main markets. It is exciting that the games that are seem to be getting the most attention are the MOBAs, are the team-based, and people are rooting for teams, right? Yeah. And these are collaborative games. I mean, there's adversarial in terms of teams, but these teams are training together and, and working together, and we're having the same conversations that, that we've had about sports for, for years right. now regarding these games. It is exciting. It, it is exciting. There, is a, there are definitely many questions. One of them is, what's the next title, you know? To get an esports title... Um, this is to get one that is really solid and that people love it bottom up. It's a huge challenge, and we'll see with Overwatch. We'll see what happens. Um, it's not yet uh, proven one way or another, but um, yeah, it will be very interesting to see the development of new titles and uh, where the whole industry is going to go. Whether we're in type of a bubble sometimes, you know, where the hype is too too much or is it really just going in a trend um, in a positive trend yeah it's because it, it's free to play basketball right you don't have to buy basketball the game to play it so these MOBAs are, are free to start and and it's incredible how much money they make even though they're free right people people are always surprised to to hear that and yeah something like overwatch which is fantastic we've talked about it here about how just so many elements of it are just very positive yeah it's always positive uh yeah. Just, it's just ooh, it just oozes posi- uh, positivity. Um, around the world, how are games for change? How is the movement going in other parts of the world? So in the, in, in the games for change perspective, definitely the U.S. Is, is a leader. I think part of it is because of um, how the American culture is, uh, um, is very um, literate with media in general and with political messages through media. I mean, we, are, we live in a society that um, is very uh, comfortable with, the, you know, social issue movies. You know, if you look at the Oscars, I mean, they're dominated by movies like Argo, 12 Years a Slave, uh, movies about historical events, you know, uh, uh, Selma, etc. So, so you have this, uh, this culture that is very uh, supportive of... Uh, dealing with real-world context in media, uh, and you don't have it in other places. So, for example, in Asia, Games for Change didn't necessarily penetrate much. I mean, we had some, uh, we had a chapter in Korea for some years, and we did some interesting things, but it's like the culture is not necessarily open to... to uh, it's almost there is entertainment, and that's it. It's like we're not doing political messages through that. Uh, Europe is uh, is probably second, and um, a lot of it is because there is a lot of government funding, uh, European Union funding. So you know you have interesting stuff being done in Europe. Um, what what I'm excited to see is some some recent emerging stuff in Africa, the Middle East. Um, you know some original work being created. It's very early, but uh, it's definitely promising. Yeah, I, I talk to people from, from different parts of the world who are coming to me with the struggles that I was seeing five, six, seven years ago 
more about talking, just even trying to have a conversation about the positive effects of games and just being completely, you know, just yeah. so much resistance. And, and like I said, like it, it's hard for me to... I'm glad that those people are reaching out to me because I forget. Because I think it's getting easier, but it's only getting easier for me here. Exactly. Yeah. So, so it's almost like in, in a simple timeline, okay? We have 12 years of... Um, advocacy work that was done by Games for Change, by the Entertainment Software Association and others. So 12 years, we were pounding the same message in the press and to, to different decision makers. And we were running the festival for 12 years. So we have a lot of people that kind of were engaged with this. We're still, have, we have tons of work to do. But all that progress, when someone is coming to you from a country that didn't have that, is starting... In 2004, basically. Yeah. You know, he's going back in time to that place where he needed to convince people why, why to even imagine something like this. Yeah. Uh, you know, when I remember when I, my first video game, Peacemaker, when I pitched it at the beginning, it was outrageous. Today, when I speak about Peacemaker, everybody gets it, yeah. you know, in the US. Yeah. The language is a big part of that. Right, like I, I've had people tell me, yeah, there's nothing in Spanish. There's nothing in my language. There's nothing here. How can I? How, like, are there any examples? And I've found that harder to find, primarily because I don't know, you know, too many languages. <laughs> I no, only know a couple. <laughs> the, the best thing that could happen is if those communities start bottom up. Mm-hmm. Um, we tried it a few times. Unfortunately, not every time it was successful because the people that that took upon themselves to start those communities, you know, they usually had another job mm-hmm. and, you know, they did something else and it was kind of a, a hobby. Um, and they and they they didn't succeed in kind of generating the same movement that we generated in the U.S. And I think that a lot of it will eventually come from the game developers, you know, the, the, the actual creators that will start to make those things happen, you know? I'm going now to Israel um, next week, and we're going to do, for the first time, an event that will bring four creators of Games for Change. That's a beginning. Yeah, yeah. It's a beginning. But uh, if Israel is such a small country, can generate four projects, I'm sure that other countries could do that as well. No, that's incredible. What about games that are here that maybe have been successful, have there been any translations that have been attempted in, in other countries? Um, not necessarily, not necessarily. I think that the, actually one of the first successes in games uh, for impact, uh, Food Force, by the UN, because it was created by the UN, was translated back in the day, it was like more than 10 years ago, to 17 languages. Um, but again, it was because someone there had this mission and yeah. it's the United Nations and you know you still have those uh, a lot of the projects are still dependent on champions yeah. still dependent on someone inside the organization that is really really believing in this um, and I think that part of the reason it's not uh, easier or more um, you know more kind of a, I must do it is that uh, it's not easy yeah. it's not easy to make a good game to begin with, yeah. it's not easy to make a game for impact. It's expensive. It's it's you need a lot of expertise. Um, again, there is the whole problem that people don't play games necessarily uh, at those organizations. So uh, it's challenging, and to do it right, you need uh, to work hard. 
the the idea of being mission focused i've talked to different people and asked them about why sort of that same idea of like why not a modification or, or, or an alteration too but i tend to use whatever if i'm working with a client or a student what games are they already playing and i try to pull something from that that i can use either as a lesson or or as a comp- contrast to something that we're we're dealing with or talking about and i've been told in the past that games like this um you have to start with the intention of doing it that way, right? The, kind of that mission. Otherwise, it it just it doesn't it, it can't have that same effect. What is your position? Yeah, I mean, it's uh, I'll try to simplify it, but I think it I think that there are two ways to go. One is that you are about self-expression. Okay, if you are a creator and you want to say something about the world, you don't need necessarily to have a very specific goal. I mean, you. You know, if uh, Anaanthropy is creating a game uh, called Dysphoria or, uh, you know, the guy that made Papers, Please, that we talked about. I mean, they just want to express themselves. That's completely great and fine. But uh, if you are an organization and you're going to invest money in something and and you have a cause, then you, you probably want to have a very specific intention because you want to measure your success. So, for example, if you want to get donations through a game, or if you want to mobilize people, or if you want to raise awareness, you want to see that the goal you you are trying to uh, achieve is being manifested manifested in everything you do, like the design, the distribution, the measurement. You know what I mean? Like, how how will you know if you succeed or not? I, I just thought of this question, but so we're talking about games for change and, and how they can save the world, and usually the positive aspect. Have you seen the opposite? Have you seen people trying to make games to promote a lack of human rights or some sort of something that might be considered negative in some cultures or against another population? So, so it's very interesting. You know, I, I I was asked a similar question last week. If you know. Um, if I'm not worried about the, the dark power of games and, and the fact that people will use it to convey messages that are, you know, anti-democratic or... Um, and I was honest. I didn't see that. So... Yeah, me neither. I can't even think of an example other than like a Flash game here and there. No, you know, no. Like, it's, it's, yeah. it's interesting that you don't see it. Most of the things are being done from more of a liberal, progressive point of view. And in some way, I'm almost... Uh, I'm almost disappointed not to see it. Yeah, I, I, I mean, at Games for Change, many times we spoke about can we do a panel for conservative games? Mm-hmm. You know, like I want to see GOP games, but there aren't. You know, yeah. so yeah. Um, it's it's interesting. It might change in the future, but when people ask me what's the change, actually, I'm trying to say that you know the change is 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 open boundaries because uh, some people will. You know, it's good to have a debate. It's good to have people with other perspectives. Yeah, no, a conservative game would be fantastic. It would help, just another way to help understand. You know, if you're not conservative, maybe that would help you understand exactly. what's going on or, or, or broader ideas within your yeah. party. Let's say I don't want to see Nazi games. But uh, but other than that, you know, things that are in the, in the let's say, legit boundaries of uh, conversation, uh, and they're not like, you know, uh, motivating you to harm someone. 
why not? You know, it's, to me, it's, it's, it's a healthy, it means that the medium go to the place where it should go uh, in, in being uh, inclusive. Yeah, it is funny, the, the energy that you need to put towards wanting to do something, right? That mission, again, um, I'm, I, I don't know why, I just remembered when I, was, when I was little, I played a lot of Christian Nintendo games. Yeah. Remember they, they used to, um, I think they were unlicensed. Yeah. And they would only sell them like in Christian bookstores. And my parents bought me a lot of them. And I would play through these Bible stories in, yeah. the, in the video games. I remember so, that. so I've yeah. seen, I, I don't remember the name of that game, but I've seen one company that is doing Christian games that uh, are a bit going beyond that. And they, they deal with the uh, apocalypse, for example. You know, they deal with like some <laughs> a bit more uh, uh, imaginary uh, scenarios. But again, it's it's not what we're talking about. It's not, yeah, like, yeah. It's not like a political statement. Per yeah, se. yeah, yeah. So I, I think I want to finish up with going back to that idea of empathy, specifically... If, if Twine is my favorite empathy tool, if I don't have a lot of time, VR is, is the, you know, the, the main thing, the thing I'm most excited about. I, I've had so many different experiences in VR, and it's super exciting to see how much better things get almost yeah. month to month. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> see something that was popular a month, a year ago, and you see it now, yeah. you're like, ugh, that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's evolving incredibly fast. So just what are your thoughts on it? What, what, uh, what experiences have you had with VR that... Yeah, so we cover it also in the book. That's kind of the last chapter. You know, we we go to uh, Stanford, to the lab of uh, Jeremy Bellinson, and, and he's actually doing experiments in empathy. He wants to show that people that do an experience in VR are much more altruistic and, um, you know, empathy positive than uh, the people that are just watching it or, or reading about it. Um, is trying to get it in, into evidence and, and is succeeding in doing that. Uh, we also talk about uh, other experiences like the machine to be another that, uh, you know, switches genders or, you know, putting a, an old man in the body of a young man. And I think that those are just scratching the surface of what we can do. And, um, you know, I, I urge people also to forget about the current state of technology or product, yeah, it's not in every home right now. Yeah, it makes some people sick. Yeah, it's crude at, at times. I mean, again, think about it in in 20 years uh, lips and you understand where it's going. And it's going to a place where VR could put us in the most immersive experiences we can, uh, we can imagine. And empathy would be just one of the things we're going to trigger um, in, a, in, a, in a real way. But it will be other things. It will be training. It will be education. It will be almost anything around us. And by the way, when I say VR, obviously I'm saying AR as well, augmented reality. I'm saying mixed reality. Uh, it's all one world that basically, you know, takes us to places that the game on the screen will look uh, like Pong to us. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's already good enough that whenever anybody comes over, I'm like, you have to play this, and I'll put one part on or a demo or something like that, and it's enough to to convert them. I think that you know the technology is there; it's not as pervasive, right? Yeah, but it's, it's definitely not. it's definitely there. Have mm-hmm. you seen any games that are that are promising in that area? Other than, I mean, the the ones in the book. I mean, I didn't I didn't necessarily see something yet. Um, I think that. Uh, 
it needs more time. But what, what's encouraging to me is also to see that it's the first medium that game makers and, and filmmakers are walking on the same platform from different perspectives. So the other thing that I really like to see is live action, you know? VR suddenly shows me interactive stuff in live action, yeah. which is pretty cool. Um, we, don't, we didn't have it much before, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I've, I've seen some, some of those. Besides some clunky CD-ROMs, you know, <laughs> in, the, in the 90s. It's true. Some of those experiences are so, I mean, it is so immersive that it's almost uncomfortable at times, yeah. you know? I think we're still straddling that, right. um, th- that but it's There are going to be exciting. many questions, and also yeah. questions of, uh, you know, uh, again, if you use it for the wrong reasons, or if someone decides it's the wrong reasons. Uh, by the way, one, one another thing that I'm very excited about VR and... Um, and some of the video games we cover in the book is the health perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, we see a lot of things that are being done uh, by brand scientists or uh, people that have very strong background in research that affect the brain in real time. So, uh, you know, something like Snow World mm-hmm. uh, that is... Access re- anesthesia. Reducing yeah. pain. Yeah. yeah. Um, just because you get someone to believe is, is a, in a different climate. This is pretty... Powerful, yeah, and uh, and again, it's just a very early prototype. Yeah, yeah, no, it's. Uh, I love I love living in the right now because yeah. it's very exciting. <laughs> yeah. Do you, um are there any other games that you've seen that that are kind of just promising or, or, or themes that you see that are coming up that are will be you think we'll be talking more about in the games for change movement within um or or games that have the potential to 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 help other people within the next, you know, two or three years? I think that, uh, you know, we covered, we talked about esports. Uh, I still want to see the connection. We talked about uh, virtual reality. I think the third one is neurogaming. Mm. And um, one project, specifically the project that I'm speaking about uh, a lot and also covered in the book, Adam Gazelli, this is a story of a, a company that might or not get FDA approval. Now, again, it's it's anybody's guess, but uh, they're they're on the way. Uh, they're probably more uh, towards the end of the journey because they they should get a decision by the summer of 2017. And if they get the FDA approval, you have to understand the implications. It it means that a doctor can give someone a, a video game to play instead of medicine, and uh, that will open a huge, uh, you know, market for uh, things like that. Yeah, it's interesting to know that there are therapists now who use neurofeedback and biofeedback games, right? They're very, very simple. They're, they're more exercises yeah. and, and, and the therapist can be there and supervise them. And yeah, to, to think that, you know, with FDA approval, it's going to, you can... I've I've been talking about uh, prescription gaming, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. for a long time. If someone tells me like, "Oh, I'm feeling like this, like this," and I'm like, "Well, what are you doing in your spare time? I play games. What games do you have?" And I'll actually help them choose a game based yeah. on you know to help them with one thing or another. Like you know, if they're very anxious, don't play that type of game. Play this one; it's more relaxing. But to have something that's designed for that is incredibly right. exciting. And and we need to also differentiate between that. That's that's like the warning label between that and brain games that are common and known because those actually um, often promise things that they can't really prove. Yeah. So we're talking about a top world-class yeah. brain scientist yep. 
coming together with talented game developers. And I think that that's the marriage that we're going to see more. Like what you described are experiments that are kind of designed by the scientists. Yeah. We will need to see them coming to good game designers. Yeah. And walking together yeah oh yeah um, those brain games again the, like I always say they they train you to get better at the game right and so in that sense they're like a lot of other games the transferable skill is just there exactly it's not uh, something the, healthier the, the transference is 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 a key is a key thing here it's not that easy you need yeah. to you need to be a brain scientist to understand how you you achieve that yeah and um, And again, it's, uh, it's, we were just at the beginning. And if uh, we'll see with the FDA case, it will be very interesting. Yeah. No, um, again, it's exciting time. Very exciting yeah. time. Um, I would love to see his lab. I would love to see the lab over in California. The, I'm, I'm so glad I got to geek out with you because uh, sure. I, I wanted to do that for a while. Uh, what is the uh, last thing that you would tell anybody about the book or something to, to take a look at? And maybe if they're, if they're new to it or still curious... I mean, I, I want to, <laughs> I, I, said, I said that I'm in the business of conversion. I, I need ambassadors, you know, and, uh, and I mean, it's not only me, but we need as a movement. And I think video games in general, I mean, I would like uh, young people to start thinking about themselves as representing a very, very powerful medium. And, um, and rather than, than go into their caves and kind of, treated as some underground uh, world and, you know, something that no one will ever understand. That's, I don't think that's the case. I think that people can understand. And I have this experience on a daily basis. And I think that all of us can be much more on the, on the ambassador's side and, and reach out and get more people to understand it and embrace it and see the beauty of it. You know, it's like you, you appreciate something And why not have other others to to you know enter that world so this is this is my wish that we'll have more outwards uh, leaning experiences and engagement than okay, my parents don't get it. I'm going to my room and lock myself you know yeah i I start almost every gaming talk that I give with e s a stats right. just to just to lay it down like listen yeah. more than half of us are playing this yeah. is This is a fact this is we let's move forward from there and stop pretending that it's and, and I want to stop also the whole uh, you know t- you talk about those stats the whole no women play what they play are not games or we, we play in I mean enough you know we're we're all playing games uh, of different kinds and that's a good thing yeah oh yeah absolutely all right thank you so much thank you <laughs> You just listened to Geek Therapy on the Geek Therapy Podcast Network. For more about Geek Therapy and our other podcasts, visit geektherapy.com.